Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. As recorded cases pass one million here in Ireland, there are reports that Neffet is considered, considering mandatory vaccinations. The Taoiseach had his say earlier. We have achieved one of the highest rates in the world through a voluntary system. That's the system that we will maintain. We will discuss this with our panel. Also tonight, another weekend of threats about the Northern Irish Protocol ahead of crucial talks this week will be live in Belfast. And later, Novak Djokovic says he's ready for the Australian Open after a win in the courts. We'll have the latest from Melbourne. We want to hear your thoughts. You can get in touch on Twitter with your comments and questions on hashtag TonightVMTV. Ireland reached a number of milestones today with the country passing one million recorded cases of COVID and more than a thousand people now in hospital in this, the latest wave. But for all the high numbers, there is optimism that what we're seeing with the Omicron variant is not as bad as what we've seen in other waves. Well, it comes after reports that Neffet is considering mandatory vaccines and that the Department of Health was preparing a paper on the issue. Well, joining me in studio is Fine Gael TD, Neil Richmond, and Sinn Féin's David Colnan. And I'm joined on Skype by Professor Jack Lambert from UCD School of Medicine, and Liam Herrick, Executive Director of the Irish Council for Civil Liberties. You're all very welcome along to the programme. Um, and I'd like to come to you first, Jack Lambert. And just looking at the situation in, in our hospitals, over a thousand people um, now in hospital, with COVID, um, a mix of with and because of COVID, um, we're hearing. But the ICU numbers are, are steady. Um, how, how do you see it all looking? Well, I think, I think it's a very good news story that Delta, which was a very pathogenic and dangerous virus, has been taken over by the Omicron. The Omicron is much more infectious, but it's much more, much less lethal. It only affects the upper respiratory tract, doesn't affect the lungs like Delta does. So you're not seeing people with whiteouts of their lung, you know, sick, requiring ICU admissions. It, it's, it's, not, it's much more serious, I think, than just the common cold and flu, but it's not lethal like we saw in the first wave of COVID or even the second wave. So it's actually a really good news story. We wish COVID wasn't here at all, but it's actually good to have a, a less lethal variant and that's showing up in the hospitals. Uh, People are not as sick when they're coming into the hospitals. People are not ending up in the ICU. And people are being in the hospital for short periods of time. So it's a good news story. It probably presents its own challenges, does it? That, you know, people are coming into hospital with other things like a broken leg or... And then it's emerged that they are actually COVID positive, but they may not be 
uh, initially treated as such. So that presents its own challenges if they're in a different part of the hospital, say, than a COVID patient. Yeah, well, we'll see every patient that comes to the emergency room now has been swapped for COVID. So over the holidays, lots of people, you know, in, uh, are were came into the hospital, like you said, for broken legs. They 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 had head trauma. They had um, drank too much alcohol. Uh, were in withdrawal. They were swabbed incidentally and found to be COVID. So the numbers in the first wave really represented six sick people. Most of the not so sick people were not admitted to the hospital. They were monitored in the community. Um, but we're now seeing you know, a, a totally different spectrum of disease. And much of the numbers not, are, represent people with what we call incidental COVID. And we're also seeing people who are brought into the hospital and just kept in quarantine because they can't be discharged because there's no safe place to send them on discharge. So it's a diff different story now than in the first few waves of coronavirus. A good story uh, in my eyes. A good story, a positive one, you say. Um, with that, if this, is, if this is all good news, what about our strategy in dealing with COVID, in dealing with the after effects? Because that's your area, the long COVID area. And the greater, I suppose, state strat strategy there in, in how we help people and how we move forward with this illness. Yeah, well, well, they said about 1% to 5% of people who got COVID ended up with long COVID. And I know of people who are... 18 to 24 months almost post their infection with COVID in the first wave, and they're still unwell. And if the numbers are now approaching a million with Omnicom, you know, increasing in numbers every day, we're going to see more people with long COVID, and we need to have a plan in the health, health executive to manage patients with long COVID. And at the present time, we don't have a plan. There is no national guidance. Uh, there's no resources that I'm aware of to support the long COVID clinics. Um, and we've been, we've been talking about this for months and months and months. And it's time to put together uh, a plan and it's time to put together money to support uh, management of these patients. Why is there no plan? Well, you, you, you know, you, you asked me why there's no plan. Um, ask yourself the question, who's in charge of the national COVID strategy, the national plan? Who's in charge? I, I really don't know. Um, that really is an issue as far as I'm concerned. Um, uh, you know, the, the issue of, of long COVID, the issue of uh, when they opened up the, the nightclubs and they said that they'd come up with guidance a week later. We're doing things way too late uh, at every step of the COVID pathway. And by the time we get our act together to come up with a plan, uh, the landscape is changing. Things change in three months. We didn't know that Omicron was going to be around uh, three months ago. Uh, we, we developed a vaccine strategy uh, based on Delta, not, not an Omicron. Um, and here we are in a, in a different situation we were three months ago. The system is very, is not transparent to me. It's very cumbersome. We need to make quick decisions. We need a transparency of who's making those decisions. And uh, I think the long COVID plan or lack thereof is an example of the lack of transparency and huge delays within the system um, in the middle of an emergency pandemic. Are you seeing cases of long COVID in people who've been vaccinated? Um, yes, yes, I actually have. I've, I've seen people, what, what, you know, pe pe what is long COVID? Long COVID is some kind of a post-infectious inflammatory autoimmune condition. And 
we, we are seeing some patients who are vaccinated and then they develop some of the symptoms of long COVID. It's not clear whether they may have had COVID before or this might have just been their first uh, infection and the vaccine might have flared up, uh, you know, the, the COVID symptoms. But yes, we are seeing some long COVID in patients following vaccination. Okay, I want to come to my panel on that. Neil Richmond, to you first. Um, there's no national strategy, according to Dr. Jack Lambert, um, and we're very late in, in dealing with this. Would you acknowledge that? Well, I think in that particular area, perhaps, but I think in fairness to Dr. Lambert, he's kind of contradicted himself, says we're too slow in addressing things that change very quickly. You know, he mentioned the vaccine strategy that it was meant for Delta, and yet the vaccine strategy, the rollout, was changed rapidly due to the change of variant. We saw that coming up to Christmas, the sheer scaling up of the vaccine programme. We look at how other countries have responded much later than Ireland. Other countries have responded much quicker and it has turned out to be the right mistake. But when you put the Irish response, economically, socially, and from a public health point of view, up against the light and compare it to other comparable jurisdictions, okay. all the world rankings, Claire, and it must be said, shows us in a very favourable light in the top four across the EU and across the world in all categories. So I think we have seen reaction. We have seen clear decision from the Minister for Health. We've seen good advice from Neffet okay. taken where it's needed, as well as other agencies. He's talking, he's talking about long COVID and, and what we're, <coughs> we're doing with regard to that strategy for the people who are living with the after effects of COVID. And there are plenty of people out there. Oh, and yet there, there's no plan. And, I accept and we've his, been living with this pandemic for over two years. And I accept his criticism thereof, and I'm not saying that, but he brought in wider th things and I thought it was important to address that. And I fully agree that we do need a concrete plan for those suffering from long COVID and the, to react to the scientific research and the data that is produced in due course. That's something that is responsibility for the Minister of Health and I have no doubt that it will be put into place in due course. Okay, something that's going to be put into place in due course. Have you heard that before, David Colnan? I certainly have. And, you know, from my perspective, one of the hallmarks of this government's response to COVID, and yes, they have got some areas right, but in lots of areas they haven't. And it's the lack of planning, the lack of preparedness, which I think drives people's spare when people have sacrificed so much. And obviously we need a plan for long COVID. I think the HSE obviously are the main uh, drivers of that. They have to be responsible for it and the Minister for Health. We have to look at the research. We have to look at what supports people will need in terms of being absent from work mm. and medical supports and so on. So obviously we need a plan. Uh, but I would say to Neil as well, if you look at antigen testing, if you look at the lack of supports for schools, for example, there are so many areas where there has been a lack of planning. And this is another one of those areas. So we do need a plan across all of these areas. But I want to make a wider point as well about what's happening in hospitals, because I am encouraged by what I'm seeing in terms of the ICU numbers. Obviously, any number is high. Any, anyone in ICU is something that we don't want to see. But if you look at what NEF had projected before Christmas, the most optimistic was somewhere between 150 and 200 people in ICU. The most pessimistic was somewhere between four and 500. And obviously, we're nowhere near any of those figures. So that should give us hope. And I think that's down to, again, the extraordinary efforts of ordinary people out there who have listened to the public health advice. They've yeah. acted, they've got vaccinated, as we know, because of the voluntary system that we have which I think we should maintain. And I think that's put us in a really strong position now. But there are other problems in the hospitals in relation to, as we know, a cancellation of elective procedures and there are still pressures on, on those on the front line. OK, um, Jack Lambert, uh, um, we heard there what Neil Richmond had to say. Um, not very happy about your criticism of the government response to the pandemic. Uh, what would you say to that? Well, well... 
you know, I, I, I still get back to the point. I, I think the system is is very bureaucratic. The, 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 the system is, when I asked last time I was on television, I asked, what's the plan for long COVID? And the minister says, we're going to have, ask NEFIT. NEFIT is just, is not the be all and end all of decision making in Ireland. I think there's, a, a, and the current system is that if NEFIT once a question asks, they they contact the expert advisory group, or they contact the national immunisation uh, group to get a position paper put together. And the timeline for for that whole process is too slow. I st I, st I still get back to the point. I think we we you know we have to act quick. Bring the best experts in on board from day one. Uh, let's use antigen tests as, as an example. Uh, what, what, were, what were the NEFIT experts saying about antigen tests six months ago? They were liking them to snake oil. Um, and the minister was standing up, uh, you know, making comments that antigen tests were useless when the rest of the world were using antigen tests. So, so we have had some successes, but we need to be successful and, and at, at every level, I think, to, to live safely with COVID and, and to, to, you know, so we, we don't say we, we can always improve on our strategy and we need to relook at the, the, the current, uh, you know, process, administrative process, decision making process to improve uh, what we're doing. And Kirsty, the speed at which we do it, just um, you're speaking about NEFIT there. What's your view um, on the minutes of the NEFIT? A meeting from mid-December showing that mandatory vaccination was being considered by our public health officials. What do you think of that? Would that be a good thing? Well, no, no I absolutely disagree. And, and I think it back to the point is, is, is that I really think um, we elected our ministers, we elected our, you know, uh, individuals within government to make decisions. I think those kind of uh, information be coming, should be coming out from our ministers, not from NEFIT. Um, I, I, first off, I think mandatory vaccination is a bad idea. But number two, I'm not, I'm not sure this is the, the kind of communications that could, should be coming out, because um, all it does is create a lot of anxiety and worry, um, and I think it's totally inappropriate. Okay, um, Neil, Neil, on that subject, and we know that the Taoiseach today said, look, he's certainly not in favour of mandatory vaccinations, nonetheless. Um, it's something that was being considered by NEFIT in mid-December. They've hardly, uh, well, we don't know, but likely not changed their tune on that now. And, and to that effect, the Department of Health are actually drawing up a paper could, to consider the ethics uh, and the, the legal situation around it. Yeah. So, so what is happening? And I, I fundamentally agree with Dr. Lambert on this. I don't think it's a good idea. I don't think mandatory vaccine is necessary. I think we've seen good buy-in from the vast, vast majority of the population and it's worked. And I fear a mandatory vaccine recommendation, if the government was to accept that recommendation, would be counterproductive. So what happens here though? So NEFIT are considering it. The Department of Health then goes away and, and does a paper on it, exploring the matter. Well, NEFIT but makes... the Taoiseach is saying, no, I'm not in favour of it. What's the point uh, as in, is in, the head in of the exploring HC. it then? Well, I don't know. That's a matter for Seems NEFIT. Like a waste and money and resources. It is absolutely a waste of time and resources and very disappointed to see a discussion from NEFIT once again leaked out. Um, I from think minutes it was leaked now. This is the minutes, revealed minutes out. of the meeting. It wasn't the way it should be communicated. That recommendation, if it was a serious one, should have been made to the government directly and the government can give a very clear opinion, which the Taoiseach has yeah. um, laid out today and indeed I see the so head of the So they wouldn't have been aware of, of NEFIT's views on mandatory vaccinations from that that meeting from mid-December? Not that I'm aware of, no, but I, I certainly hope most importantly that the notion of mandatory vaccines isn't one recommended and isn't one pursued. Um, briefly on that, David Cullen and the Department of Health drawing up a paper on it, but the Taoiseach very clearly 
saying today, no, I'm not in favour of any such move? Well, first of all, I would be almost certain that if there was a leak, it didn't come from Neffed. I would imagine it came from government. But on the issue of the, the mandatory vaccination... It's Well, I, I'd say, if you listen to what the CMO said before Christmas again, he made it very clear that there was no leaks coming from Neffed. And as soon as information is given to government within five minutes, it's leaked. And, you know, your own party leader has uh, mm. form in leaking as well, as we know. So we know the experience I think of that's people. A, that's a bit below you, David. No, you it come isn't, on, like, it isn't you're, because you've this government you've has... You've been consistently credible and you're making some good points here, but you've decided to make an unnecessary political point here. You were the one there that cast dispersion on Netflix. I was the I'm one who said I'm very disappointed in the way it's discommunicated. Exactly. And, and more importantly, leak, David, and more I'm importantly, saying, we're actually agreeing. Speak, please, that, no, because I think you've made a big accusation there that was needless, because we're actually agreeing on a point. I think people would like to see that when politicians are clear that mandatory vaccines isn't the right way to go, that we should demonstrate and, and that. And when, when Neil gets off his high horse for a second, he was the one that talked about a leak, not me. And I'm just saying that I don't believe the leak came from Neffet. My best assumption would be if there was a leak, it came okay. from government. But to get back to the issue, exactly. On the issue. To get back to the issue, I don't believe, and I, I agree with Neil, and, and I haven't heard a single politician stand up and say that they uh, are in favour of uh, mandatory vaccination. I think it would be very foolish because the voluntary model that we have has worked. Okay. It's extraordinary, the very high levels of uptake that we have. And for me, that's in big part down to uh, the voluntary element. Okay, I want to bring Liam Herrick from the Irish Council for Civil Liberties in. Um, Liam, thank you for joining us tonight night. Uh, Neff had perhaps at odds with government on this. Would you expect clarification on the matter? Because there is some thought that it may be sector specific that consideration may be given to such a move for yeah. mandatory vaccines. Yeah, Claire, I mean, I think a lot of people were surprised. Um, we had understood that Neffet was considering the question about how do you have mandatory vaccination in a health setting? Uh, the minutes do suggest that it might be a broader discussion that they were having. Uh, and certainly, I think, as you've seen, the political response has been very unequivocal uh, across the board. All political parties are opposed to mandatory vaccination. I think that's because we have a historical approach to vaccination in Ireland going back decades, which has always been based on the voluntary principle. And it's because of the constitutional right to bodily mm. integrity, the constitutional right to privacy, um, strong values in the Irish legal and medical systems. But also, of course, in the Irish context, the timing is very strange because we have had, as has been pointed out, uh, one of the most successful vaccination programmes in the world on a purely voluntary basis. So there is a social contract that we've had here, which is a good news story about the Irish public being act, asked to, to demonstrate solidarity in taking on the vaccine to protect themselves and protect others. And it's been hugely successful. So at this point in time, that trust is such a valuable commodity, uh, why would anybody consider jeopardising it? Okay. And if I think Neffet's discussion was just about the health sector, they should clarify that. If it's broader, I think it, it, the timing is very hard to understand. And on the health sector, many would say those working closely with patients should be vaccinated, should they? And do they have well, the right, if they're not vaccinated, to stay in their job? I think that there are complex questions there about employment rights and health and safety at work. But again, you have to remember that we have had vaccination programmes in the healthcare sector before, and they've been on a voluntary basis. Uh, the take-up in the health sector has been hugely high. And you have to ask yourself the question, what additional level of benefit would come 
from trying to have a coercive policy with healthcare workers that have sacrificed so much at this point in time, given that they're utilising all the other tools of patients and staff safety, PPE, you know, very clinical environments where there's a lot of other protections in place. So I think the HSE and the Department of Health would have to show a compelling case that there's some additional level of safety that would be achieved here that can't be achieved in any other way. Mm. The, the bottom line is we have 95% of the adult population fully vaccinated. Remarkable. Um, if you're interested in really trying to encourage the other 5%, then you keep doing what you've been doing already, but you try to take extra measures to reach the hard-to-reach sections of the population. There's every chance that a mandatory policy would be counterproductive and, in fact, cause huge damage to the public that, trust that's that, been built that up. That certainly has been the strong line, uh, win them over with hearts and minds. But we know that the UK is beginning to impose mandatory vaccination rules. I mean, the question is, because we've done U-turns before, could we do a U-turn on this like we have with regard to other measures in the pandemic, especially if it's being considered or certainly uh, an exploration paper is being drawn up by the Department of Health on this? Well, I think a very interesting point Liam mentioned there, and I think it's worth repeating, is how to reach the hard-to-reach sectors, those people who perhaps English isn't their native language, perhaps who've only recently come to the country, or perhaps aren't um, registered with their local GP. And that's a far more productive use of time, is going down that avenue to pick up, because every single extra person that's double vaccinated, that's boosted, is one extra person I'm, that I'm goes asking, into I'm it. I'm asking and this the point, to your, your point, if you're saying, if they should turn around, I would be very, very concerned that a policy of a mandatory vaccination programme for a broad spectrum of society would be extremely counterproductive. We've all said that here. If you're looking at targeted, we see Italy talking about certain age demographics, the UK certain professions. There is, of course, an argument that non-vaccinated people in the healthcare sector might be moved so away from the targeted front, move front, that front we're talking about roles. in Italy? Say they're saying mandatory in over 50s in Italy as of January 5th. Would that I, be I something? No, I think that's far too, um, far too aggressive a move to make and I think it would be very counterproductive. Um, OK, listen, on that, we'll have to leave it there. My thanks to Jack Lambert, who joined us earlier, and Liam Herrick, also joined us via Skype tonight. Neil Richmond and David Cullinan will be staying with me as we take a look at the latest threats to the Northern Irish Protocol. Next. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
Well, over the last few months, we've seen uh, the triggering of Article 16 uh, by the UK government, or at least the threat of it. Uh, this weekend was no different, with UK Foreign Secretary Liz Truss saying she would do just that if talks with the EU fail. But joining me from Belfast is journalist Amanda Ferguson. Amanda, you're very welcome along to the programme tonight. Take us through what the British Foreign Secretary has been saying ahead of these critical meetings this week with the EU. Yes, well, we know that the, the British government has repeatedly put the threat of triggering Article 16 uh, on the table. However, I'm sure your uh, viewers are well aware by now that that just brings people right back to the negotiation table because um, Article 16, uh, if it's triggered, it doesn't scrap the protocol as such. It only suspends parts of it. So Liz Truss has um, been in the position today where she's been meeting with the DUP and with Sinn Féin. Uh, she met in person in London uh, with the DUP and they essentially emerged uh, from that meeting to say uh, that they want the UK government to set the timeline uh, for their command paper for what happens next. So that slightly moves the, the onus away from uh, Sir Geoffrey Donaldson and the, and the DUP to, to make good on, on their threat to uh, withdraw their ministers uh, from government. Uh, you know, should the changes to the protocol uh, not be to their liking. It's, it's it's paused for the moment, was I think was the, the words that Sir Geoffrey Donaldson used. But then, you know, Sinn Féin also uh, met with uh, Liz Truss today and that was done on a virtual basis. And Mary Lou MacDonald uh, emerged from that pretty much saying that, uh, you know, that the protocol remains, that she was uh, received assurances that it's going nowhere mm. um, and essentially accusing the DUP of politicking. So what was this, just fighting words going into these talks and um, these face-to-face -face talks which are so critical at this point? Well, we know that uh, the DUP is under a lot of pressure because it is uh, sort of repeatedly said that it wants movement on uh, the protocol and it hasn't quite received what it wants yet. Now, we know that the, the UK is going to go into this and want perhaps the, the role of the European Court of Justice minimised, that it's going to want uh, checks between uh, GB and Northern Ireland if the goods are staying within Northern Ireland, uh, you know, for that, um, you know, to, to end. Uh, it is the, the sort of never-ending story and the the story that really, you know, will anybody be satisfied no matter what happens? But certainly there's a sense because we are moving into a period uh, in the north where we have an assembly election coming up in May, uh, there isn't very much room left uh, for the, the DUP to make good on withdrawing its ministers because, you know, by the time March rolls around, uh, we're going to be in full election mode. Some people would argue that uh, the parties in the north are already in election mode. And that's what a lot um, of this discourse is about at the moment. And how are those elections looking at this point? Um, of course, how all that pans out plays a huge part as well. It does indeed. You know, the, 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 whether or not Sinn Féin becomes the largest party in the North, whether the DUP retains that, whether Doug Beattie's uh, new sort of refreshed uh, sort of progressive look at unionism is something that chimes with voters, uh, how much impact uh, Jim Allister from the TUV and, and his hardline view, um, what difference that makes um, is, is all up in the air. I think that uh, a lot of what we're seeing at the moment is the parties conscious of the fact that uh, the election is is coming up uh, in a few months' time. And I think that uh, you know the, the issue around uh, the, the protocol around the, the EU bringing forward the solution to medicines, uh, you know, that looked to be something that may have been resolved or the UK uh, government hasn't hadn't um, accepted mm. uh, that so far. But 
now thrown into the mix. The Agriculture Minister has raised the issue about what might happen when it comes to veterinary medicine, that perhaps the, the proposals that have been brought forward uh, uh, by the EU uh, only uh, cover human medicine. So there's a lot in the mix uh, around, uh, you know, what might happen. And also as well, overlapping all of this, uh, you know, whether the protocol or the parties arguing with each other about what happens next um, is the future of Northern Ireland, the future constitutional position of Northern Ireland. That always comes into play uh, whenever we're, we're dealing with matters such as this. And then also that uh, sort of like faux argument about, uh, you know, who takes on the first minister role, even though we know that uh, first minister and deputy first minister is a joint office. Uh, there's something sort of uh, in the psyche of some unionists and that they're a little bit concerned that, that the DUP or a unionist party may not uh, hold the top position. And psychologically, that could be diff difficult for some unionists to handle. OK, there we'll leave it. Amanda Ferguson, thank you for joining us from Belfast tonight with that update. Um, I want to bring my panel uh, back in. Fine Gael TD, Neil Richmond and Sinn Féin's David Colnan. We heard there from Amanda, David, that Mary Lou Macdonald, uh, your leader, was in talks with Liz Trust today. So is what emerged from that uh, all talk uh, and no action planned uh, by the British Foreign Secretary when she said about this Article 16 and the potential to trigger it um, if the talks don't go their way? Well, we've said over the last number of months that what we need is, is cool heads and calm heads. And we need to remind ourselves of a, of a number of things. This Tory government negotiated the protocol. It was a product of a long, long negotiation between the British government and the European Union. And the protocol has majority support in the North, both from the elected representatives in the Assembly and also from the people, because it is about supporting but not the from Good this Friday DUP cohort. And, the co and they're a minority, but the protocol, bear in mind, is about protecting the Good Friday Agreement. It's about jobs, it's about prosperity, and it's about stability. And we need to do everything possible to protect it, because it was a good deal for the island of Ireland. And it's ironic that the very people who created the trade barriers, the people who campaigned for Brexit, the DUP, are now the ones complaining about trade barriers. So this is politicking from the DUP. We know that. It's a electioneering and what we need to do is carefully work our way through this and there is a mechanism that is in place called the Joint Committee where if there are any practical issues that need to be ironed out they can be ironed out by using that process. Okay. Neil Richmond it's hardly a good start to these talks ahead of them even happening um, that we have old threats um, from a new British Brexit negotiator here. No, it's a disappointing start and it's an ultimately pointless one. You know, a week before um, Liz Truss's first in-person meeting with Mara Shevkovic, she takes to a trusted newspaper and leads with the headline that I'm prepared to trigger Article 16. After the weeks leading up to Christmas where the two teams in the Joint Implementation Committee ironed out some key issues, the European Commission presented very generous practical proposals born out of the desires of people in Northern Ireland, business people, community leaders and indeed politicians. We'd hope we could start with a fresh Brexit negotiator mm. and put some common sense into the discussions. So, despite all this talk around it, is the mood positive going into these talks? Because they are critical. I mean, we, we've been talking about this and the protocol for so long now, and yet there's talks about talks, uh, there's talks that end in threats and promises of further talks. So where are we at now at the start of 2022? Well, I think we're in a better place than we were, say, in the middle of 2021, but 
let's not forget this protocol is less than a year old in place. And the first thing the British government has done is repeatedly tried to trigger Article 16 and threaten to walk away. And as Amanda said, triggering Article 16 doesn't get rid of the protocol. It doesn't get rid of the withdrawal agreement. It merely opens more negotiations. I think we can head in with a bit more optimism, a bit more common sense. But unfortunately, the personalities at play has given Liz Truss the reason to stake her claim early. And I fear it has nothing to do with Northern Ireland, the protocol, but domestic politics what we instead. Need, what we need is constructive work. It's good faith. And I think everybody coming at it for the right reasons. The grandstanding from the DUP just needs to come to an end. Mm. There will be an assembly election in May of this year. And everything that's happening in relation to the opposition coming from the DUP has to be seen through that electoral lens. That's what's happening here. And what we need to do is not lose sight of the fact that the protocol is hugely important to the all-island economy, protecting trade north and south, and I would argue east and west. It was a product of a long negotiation and it can't be allowed to unravel because of the DUP and their electoral rivalries with others in unionism. Okay, I want to move to another matter now. A poll for the Sunday Independent this weekend and Ireland Thinks showed that Sinn Féin is on 33% with Fine Gael on 23% in the popularity stakes. Uh, Fianna Fáil is there on 19%. All other parties in independence failed to register above 10%. And I want to uh, talk to my panel about this. First, we'll look at another poll. Uh, that's by the Sunday Independent and Ireland Thinks. That's the current coalition of Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil and the Greens were preferred by 38% of those polled. And a coalition of Sinn Féin and other left-leaning parties were favoured by 34%. Um, well, let's take a look and, and chat about uh, the findings of those polls with uh, two party members from two of the parties that feature very much in that. Uh, Neil Richmond, now we see Fine Gael has really taken another hit, both the party and uh, the leader. The party currently stands at 23% in this poll, down two points. And in terms of Leo Radker's popularity, uh, it's at 3.8, a score out of 10. So Mary Lou MacDonald and uh, crucially, Micheál Martin ahead of him. What does the party make of it? Well, look, it's a disappointing opinion poll. I'm not going to try and pretend otherwise, but it is an opinion poll and we're about three years away from a general election. We got 20% in the last general election. Since then, we've got up, gone up to 37% in opinion polls. We've gone down, we go in. You take it in, in, the, in, the, in the sense that it's presented, you look through the details, but it gives us an idea, looking into New Year, of what we need to do as a party. And yes, we do need to improve our performance, and I look forward to playing my part in that. What do you think you need to do? Well, I think we need to make clear decisions and we actually need to get what we're doing in government across better. We need to work harder, quite clearly. That's the thing. We've been in government for 11 years. We need to demonstrate where we have delivered for the people consistently in areas in terms of uh, bringing the country out of an economic miss, averting the key disasters of Brexit and steering the country, as I said before, very well through the a global pandemic, the lights that hasn't been seen in a century. But... I give credit to Sinn Féin, it's an opinion poll result, but as I said, I don't put much truck in opinion polls in isolation until the actual election day. Yeah, um, you probably would give credit to Sinn Féin because they're 10 points ahead of Fine Gael. Um, so the question is, where do you position yourself now? Like, I mean, you're saying you have to consider, you know, what you're doing right and what you're doing wrong. Where specifically do you think the party may not be best serving, I suppose, the voters who are clearly moving elsewhere? Well, I think it's very clear that we communicate exactly what we're doing in government, that we show that the policies that we brought in, the areas from our manifesto that we put in the programme government that we're actually delivering in terms of protecting people's income, in terms of the very key areas in terms of delivering housing, bringing our healthcare system through the biggest challenge it's ever faced. And I think we do have a good track record of government, but 
it is a disappointing opinion poll, but, but it's not one to lose too much time. And issues around housing, health and all those other and things, again, things we've been in government since, since and again, 2011. And again, we've had some good successes there, but this is an opinion poll, okay. three years out from a general election. If do you we were on, fact three years out? Yeah, I do. Okay. We're elected to a five-year term. I know I was, and I know when we got, we got elected, it was on 20%. So all we have to do is work hard every day. Okay, work hard every day. Um, David Cullinan, Sinn Féin may be sitting pretty, um, I mean, consistently. It's not just this poll. We can't say, you know, the polls, the polls have consistently shown Sinn Féin to be doing well. But what's interesting there is that despite being at 33%, when people in the poll were asked, who would you favour in a coalition? Um, they plumped for the current coalition, still finding, you know, voters um, up there at 38% over Sinn Féin, say, with the left-leaning party at 34%. What, what do you do about that? Yeah, listen, it, it shows that there's lots of interesting information in, in this opinion poll and all of the opinion polls we've seen over the last six months. I think the main consistent point coming from the polls is that Sinn Féin has increased consistently over that six-month period. Fianna Gael has dropped and Fianna Fáil is pretty much where it was at. And obviously we're, we're comfortable in terms of where we are in the polls, but we won't take anything for granted. And I can tell you that the Sinn Féin feet will stay firmly on the ground, that my focus as the health spokesperson is to articulate yeah. as best I can Sinn Féin's alternative of the felt vision, the same with owner brain housing, Claire Coran and social protection and cost of living issues and obviously our job is to convince people that we can lead a government and that has to be having a strong policy platform. Uh, I think the government has failed in many of the areas that Neil has outlined. If you look All at right. housing, if you look at health, the cost of living, I don't think a lot of people listening in who are actually living the reality of those bad policies will say that the government have done a good job and they're looking for change. I think that's a very strong sentiment. I think we're very well positioned. Okay. Okay. but we're not taking anything for granted. Right, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, my thanks to Neil Richmond and David Colnan. Coming up next, the Novak Djokovic saga takes another major twist in Melbourne. We'll have the latest after a dramatic day down under. back after nearly a week of chaos. Novak Djokovic is finally out of detention and back on a tennis court. He won a court battle over his visa application after he was refused entry into the country. But that may not be the end of the drama as the Minister for Immigration in Australia is still deciding whether to personally cancel the world number one's visa. Well, earlier, Djokovic's family held a press conference in his home country of Serbia. It's been a battle uh, for all of us. It's not just about Novak, obviously. Um, we've been defending him every possible way we could because we know he's a truthful and rightful guy and he will never do anything to uh, across any federal or state law anywhere in the world. A short time ago, I spoke to Catherine Murphy, sports reporter at ABC Melbourne. I began by asking her what happened over the past 24 hours. Would you believe, Claire, and hello to you, there was a really surprise for anyone that was following it all day. And it was a very bizarre day, Claire. So first of all, there was a delay to the start of proceedings because there was technical issues with the video link. Then proceedings got underway without media watching, which obviously there was a big reaction to that. Finally, then the video link got up and running. Then through the course of the day, it crashed around five times, such was the public interest and the number of people trying to log on to this case. Now, anyone who managed to follow it through those five links 
saw three hours of submissions from Novak Djokovic's legal team. He had two senior barristers compared to the federal government's one senior barrister. And they made those three hours of submissions around the fact he had done, in his view and his legal team's view, everything he possibly could to ensure a successful entry into Australia. They really focused on the Australian travel declaration process that is a process, Claire, that everyone that enters Australia now goes through. I went through it myself over the weekend, where you declare that you're vaccinated or otherwise. If you're vaccinated, you update your search onto an app or a website. And in his case, if you're not, he uploaded a medical exemption, which was granted to him by the Victorian government and Tennis Australia, so he and his legal team believed he had done everything he could for a smooth transition into Australia. There were three hours of submissions compared to the federal government. The senior barrister said he was planning to argue that there had been fair process in the cancellation of the visa. He requested more time to prepare submissions. It was adjourned for more than an hour, a couple of hours, and all of a sudden it was over, Claire. It was more surprising that we didn't hear more submissions from the federal government and surprising that it ended so quickly. But from what we heard, which was the simple issue not simple, complex issue of the border, there wasn't a surprise to the result. Of course, then, there's this claim um, by Djokovic that he had a positive COVID test back in December 16th, in fact, and that's stirring a lot of controversy, isn't it? It is. And that's one thing that wasn't discussed yesterday, Claire, in the court hearing. It was all about the documentation that Novak Djokovic had provided to the federal and state governments before leaving for Australia. And also the manner in which he was questioned by border force. That was discussed a lot. And that's what ended up in the ruling that his visa cancellation was quashed. This part of it wasn't discussed, but it's clear that he got his medical exemption based off a positive PCR test on December 16th, but was then photographed. And there are a number of photos on social media where he attended a ceremony. There were kids there. A French newspaper has also said that they did an interview with him masked, but a photo shoot unmasked. Now, regardless of the fact the legal part of this for now has ended and there could be more twists in this story, that certainly will be continue to be discussed and to cause controversy. So what happens from here? Is Djokovic now free to play in the Australian Open? Well, would you believe, Claire, in one of the most surreal days I've worked in sport, Djokovic went from the federal court to centre court to Rod Laver Arena with his team last night. He put a picture up on Twitter, thanking fans for their support, saying now he just wants to focus on the Australian Open. And he couldn't say any more for now. You imagine there is a big interview coming at some point down the line. But the immigration minister in Australia still has the power to cancel his visa. And they're still considering that. But you would think, Claire. Now that he has gone, he's trained on the court, he's started his preparation. 
I just can't imagine him being removed again from that scenario because then what would happen? Are we back in the federal court? It is unbelievable that we're in this situation six days out from the start of the Australian Open and the nine-time champion. Let's not forget, he's going for Australian Open number 10. The stakes are so high. If he wins, it will be his 21st Grand Slam. That means he would overtake Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal. It's crazy, Claire. Usually we're talking about tennis. Rafael Nadal is in great form. He's just won a title, one of the build-up events to the Australian Open. But we're talking about Novak Djokovic. Okay. well, look, we'll have to see where it all goes from here. Uh, Catherine Murphy of ABC News in Melbourne, thank you so much for joining us with that update tonight. Thank you, Claire. And in studio, I'm joined by Martin Healy, a sports reporter with Extra.ie, to look at the wider picture around sports stars and vaccinations. There's been quite a bit of controversy. I mean, of course, this issue with Novak Djokovic really brought it all uh, centre stage to centre court. Um, it, it really had everything, didn't it? And he flew essentially into a big political storm. But the issue of vaccination has caused its own problems over here in the UK Premiership and in the States where it's been a big issue. Indeed it has. Um, obviously Djokovic has a long history of saying controversial things and bringing the spotlight on himself. But in terms of, of Ireland and the UK, we haven't seen this kind of controversy on the scale before. Like last time we had the issue with the Tyrone um, G18 before the All-Ireland semi-final where they, um, they, they pushed the game back for, for a week because they had too many COVID cases. Which was, and then we also had in October, Colin Robinson, the Ireland player, saying that you know, he wasn't vaccinated and there was a bit of a storm around that. But generally speaking, there's been nothing on this scale really in the UK and Ireland that can match the Djokovic scandal, really. Yeah, how do you think... I, I mean, there was a, a real problem, wasn't there, in the UK with, with uh, you know, the Premiership because in October, late October, November, because of a huge number of cases. That's levelled out a bit now. Has the vaccine uptake increased, um, increased somewhat because of the problems that, you know, COVID cases were causing? Yeah, so we're still having an issue with postponed games a lot because obviously with Omicron it spread so easily that a lot of games are still being called off. But generally the, the vaccine numbers have gone way up from early on in the season. It would have been in September, it might have been like 60% of players would have been vaccinated. But now, according to the numbers from last month, I think from December, um, around 90% of players in the Premier League have been jabbed at least once. So that's a massive increase of before because before then it was a long way behind like the other major European soccer leagues. Or if you look in the US with the NFL, the NBA, they have very, very strict rules about vaccination. And even though it's a country in which people often don't get vaccinated in America, it, they had huge numbers. They had 95% of players were taking up the vaccine. So it is getting slightly better. Tell but us about the... Um because in the US, there's penalties being imposed on players, isn't there? Yeah, like in the, I mean, now it's leveled out a bit with Omicron. They're so desperate for games to be held that they, they're easing some things back. But originally the rules, say, in the NFL were if a player didn't get vaccinated, he wouldn't be able to, you know, be used to common rooms in, like a in the training centre. He, they would have, if they got COVID, they'd have a longer period in self-isolation. And they have to take daily tests, they have to wear a mask all the time. These are the kind of things that we didn't really see. That's just sort of like, you know, the stick versus the carrot in the Premier League or in anywhere else really in UK or Irish sport, but in the US they've been very strict about it and it worked quite well. Are we likely to see it here? I mean, look, there's an argument that those under 30 are, I don't know, in, and sports stars in particular, like there is a vaccine hesitancy there and people will say, look, I have, you know, bodily autonomy and I have my rights. Indeed, I think we're probably, 
there's probably less um, hesitancy now because this new variant has been so rampant that players have been taking up. Specifically in Ireland, we don't really know exactly, but Irish rugby seems to take up his rate. It was always very high. GAA, obviously, was amateurs, so it's a general population there. And then the League of Ireland, we don't really know so much about the numbers there. But generally, it's been okay in Ireland in line with the regular national numbers. But I think just, just given how rampant things have been recently with the numbers, it's no surprise that players are taking you know, taking up the vaccine more than they were before. Okay, and especially in the Premiership, money comes into it, doesn't it? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that's always uh, the way, and it's always a big decider in, in how things play out. Okay, Martin Healy from Extra.ie, thank you for joining us um, with that look at uh, the sports world this evening. That is it from us. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. Our next news is on Ireland AM tomorrow morning, but from all the late team here, good night. Take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.